we're starting a new series today, Campfire Stories. I already mentioned that. Again, I'm going to talk more about what that means and what that looks like for us. But one of the things that we're doing, primary thing that we're doing, is we're retelling some old stories and doing so in such a way that it's like, what if we were telling these stories as if we were gathered around a campfire? How might we change them a little bit? How might we uh, gloss over some details, highlight some other things in a way that like uh, enters us into the experience of sitting around a campfire with people? And so each week, um, we will be rewriting the stories that, that I'm going to be talking about in my messages. And then what we're going to try to do, it might be mass chaos, but we're at least going to try it is we're going to try, before I actually get up here and talk about it, to have the kids come up and have someone read them the story that has been rewritten. So kids, if you can hear me, I have cookies for you. I have cookies for you. If you come up and sit down right around here, we have, I am sharing my s'more-flavored Oreos with you. Because it's campfire stories. Watch out for cords. Watch out for cords. Just pick up your feet. And we're going to have Mr. Trevor come up and read today's story. You can take a seat. You can sit down. Mr. Trevor is going to read the story. And then as soon as the story is done, Miss Katie is over here with the s'more-flavored Oreos and then some gluten-free cookies as well. Do you have the story with you? Okay, just making sure. Oh yeah, you need a microphone. Yeah, just turn it on and then turn it off when you're done. I'm gonna mess up your microphone, Jacob. Hey guys, come on in so you can hear, okay? We're gonna tell a campfire story today. Do you guys know where the best campfire stories come from? From the top of your head. So that's where I kept it, okay? Okay, so today, we are talking about a guy named Noah. Who here has heard of Noah? Anybody? What did Noah build? A boat. A boat. That's right. We're going to learn about that, OK? Have you guys ever been on a boat? Yeah. So fun. I went on a boat yesterday with Raza's family and Roy's family. You fished? That's awesome. We did. Oh my gosh. There are way more stories than I brought. You did? Good job. OK. so. You know where we went to go on a boat ride? We went to the river. That's where we met. Do you know where Noah went for a boat ride? To the middle of the desert. What? Let's hear about it, okay? Here's what Noah did. Once upon a time, in a land far away, there was a man named Noah. Good job. Noah was a good man and did everything he could to follow the way of God in the world. The rest of the world, however, was not quite as good. Everywhere God looked, there was fighting and corruption. No one could get along. So God, the creator of all things, decided to start over. And they decided to start over with Noah. You do things right, Noah, God said, and I'd like that goodness to spread. But first, I need to take care of all the evil, injustice, and oppression. So I need you to build a boat for yourself and your family. Fill it with animals and wait patiently while I clean the earth with water. Noah didn't fully understand what he was saying yes to, but he said yes to God anyways and got to work on the boat. When the boat was complete, 
Noah and his family and all the animals got on. And it started raining hard. And it rained hard for over a month until the water had nowhere to go but up. The water covered everything in sight. And everything and everyone not on the boat didn't survive. But God wasn't just destroying. God was recreating. Nearly five months later, the floodwaters began going back down. When the waters were finally gone, Noah and his family and all the animals left the boat and stood on solid ground for the first time in what felt like forever. And it was there on that solid ground that God made a promise. Looking to the horizon where a rainbow had appeared, God told Noah, I am a God of new creation and new beginnings. I'm not only powerful, but also good. And I'm no longer in the business of death, but of new life. And to show you that I'm serious, I'm hanging up my war bow in the sky and filling it with color as a reminder. The end. Do you guys want cookies now? All right. All right, one more round of applause for Trevor. And for our kids listening so well, cookies never hurt. Remember that. Cookies never hurt, unless you're my kids. All right, we're going to try that again next week. I think that worked really well. So um, I am a professional um, ruiner of things. Some people might call it something else. Some people might call it a killjoy. I'm a professional ruiner of things. Now, it's not because I like ruining things. It just like kind of comes natural to me and, and who I am. Um, in StrengthsFinder terms, if you're familiar with StrengthsFinder, I have the, the StrengthsFinder themes of learner and input. Learner and input are about like learning and, and collecting information. Uh, input specifically uh, is described as like a sponge. You're like trying to soak up as much information as possible. This is how my brain works. It doesn't matter whether it's relevant information, anything I know or not. I just like information. Well, the thing about a sponge is once it gets soaked up, something's got to be done with that stuff that's been soaked up, right? So I often find places and people with whom I can squeeze it out. And sometimes people are prepared for the things that I'm going to squeeze out, and other times they're not. Often this happens to my wife. She gets whatever I squeeze out, and she could not care less about most of the things that I have to tell her. Usually it goes something like this. Did you know that? That's when you know to run. Because I very well might ruin something for you. Sometimes it's helpful information. You might find it interesting. Sometimes it's information that you're like, I don't really care about that. It might even be boring. Or it might be information that like is not good and is going to ruin something that is important to you. So I'll give an example. Um, one of the things that I have ruined in the past is eating and food. Uh, 11 years ago, I made the very uh, purposeful and personal decision to become vegetarian. Uh, I, did lots of, I did lots of reading, lots of research, decided uh, all the stuff that I was learning about food and where food comes from. I was not um, comfortable with eating certain types of food, specifically meat products, and so I made that decision for myself, a, a purposeful, um, personal 
decision. Now, 11 years later, I've come to the point where I usually tell people, um, don't worry about me. I, I can take care of myself. Um, we have the barbecue later today. I went not out and I brought um, plant-based brats that I'm going to bring. Anna and Miranda shouldn't have to worry about that. It's, it's my thing, not theirs. They don't need to worry about me. That's 11 years after I made this decision. Early on, though, um, in, in those early days and in some of my worst moments, I thought it would be best to tell people why I made these decisions and share some of those important details about where their food came from. Did you know that blank? Um, it turns out a lot of people don't want to know how the sausage is made. Um, and, and instead, what, what I needed to process and what I needed to get myself to the point of is that some people don't want to know where the sausage is made and they just want the experience of eating that sausage. And then I needed to be okay with it. So that's one example. Food, it's a, it's a funny example, but um, there was a time in my life when the Bible was ruined for me and because it was ruined for me and I wasn't fully aware of it, I went out and started ruining it for other people. And, and in order to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, I need to back up about 500 years. So in the 1500s, there's this thing called the Scientific Revolution. Familiar with the Scientific Revolution? So this is a time when humanity starts to understand better the world around it and how it, how it interacts with science and, and math. And so these scientists and mathematicians start putting together these scientific methods and these mathematical equations to understand the world. And, and it helped them to understand the world, but another thing that it did was um, many of them said, well, if, if it doesn't fit within this method and it doesn't fit within these equations, then it doesn't make sense and maybe it just ought to be rejected as a whole. So this touches basically everything in society, but it also touches religion generally and the Bible specifically. When you open up the page of the Bible and the, and the stories of the Bible, a lot of it doesn't make scientific or mathematical sense. Um, given what we've learned about the earth, does it make sense that the Bible, if we follow the timeline and the story, uh, th that the earth is only 6,000 years old and it took only six days to make? Does, does that make a whole lot of sense? Does it make sense that given what we know about earth and, and, uh, and the cosmos that uh, when we die and we're good, we go up. And if we die and we're bad, then we go down. Does that make a whole lot of mathematical and scientific sense? Uh, and then does it make sense that uh, the, the sun goes across our sky? It's the sun that's moving across our sky as we stay put, like uh, some of the stories in the Bible say. D does that make scientific or mathematical sense? Those, they don't. And so the idea was, well, they don't fit our formulas, they don't fit our, our, our methods, and so maybe, maybe they need to be rejected. Well, many of the religious people, the, the church leaders, weren't prepared for this revolution, weren't, weren't prepared for these questions that were being asked, and so they were kind of caught flat-footed, caught on their heels. But rather than doing uh, their own critical thinking about, well, what is the Bible actually trying to do here, um, they adopted the same rules. They, they tried to, to fit everything within these formulas, within these methods, and say, no, we need to prove. We, we need to defend the Bible. It is true, and we're going to fit it as best as we can within these formulas and within these methods to prove it. 
We're going to defend this thing against anyone who might come out against it. And so the Bible becomes a text. It becomes a text that gets studied like any other type of science. And there are these uh, professions that come up, these um, these entire lines of scholarship that come up to prove the historicity, to prove where the Bible came from, to prove how it was assembled, to say, yes, that we can be certain because of this method and this approach that this is true. Uh, having grown up in the tradition that I grew up in, a Bible-believing tradition, I, I was taught many of these things. It was my responsibility as a Christian to go out and defend the Bible, to prove that it was true. And then going to school to learn about the Bible and going to seminary, uh, it was my job then to help teach other people these things. But what we didn't consider was that we were building a flaw, a critical flaw into the entire system. Uh, to, to reference Star Wars, you Star Wars geeks out there like me, it's like the Death Star, this moon-sized uh, space station that can be taken out by hitting one port. That's about this big. Spoiler alert. This flaw was built into the system where if one thing goes down, one small thing goes down, the whole thing explodes. And so what happens is the, the religious conservatives, those who were trying to defend the Bible, say it has to be true in these very specific ways. If it's not true in these very specific ways, everything comes crashing down. They're going to do everything they can to prove and defend it. Because if not, everything comes crashing down. Meanwhile, the other side, if you're science-minded, and these are the rules, if, if one thing's come crashing down and it all comes crashing down, you're going to completely reject all of it. It's a fatal flaw that's built within the system that says we have to work by these things to prove and defend. But my question is, does the Bible actually need to be proven and defended? Maybe we need to take the Bible for what it is. Maybe we need to read it and interact with it and embrace the experience of it, trusting that somehow God is going to give us what we need when we need it in the moment that we need it. That's what this series, Campfire Stories, is all about. Rather than getting into all of these details about historicity and where, where these stories came from, th those are important things that we can talk about, but they distract from the experience. And, and so I want to come to these stories knowing, like, in a campfire story, you're going you're gonna to know that there might be some fanciful things that are added in. You're going to know that there are certain details that maybe uh, are blown out of proportion, but it's about creating this experience. And the, uh, the two questions that we're going to ask throughout the series, which each, with each of these stories that we cover, are why on earth did this story survive for thousands of years? Why did people continue to tell this story when there's all sorts of other stories that they could have told and passed down? And then number two, what does this story tell us about ourselves, God, and the world. So today's story is the story of Noah and the big flood. You all familiar with Noah, right? Noah is probably one of the most famous Bible stories for adults, also one of the most famous Bible stories for kids. Uh, my guess is most kids' Bibles include the story of Noah in them. If you go to, uh, if you go look for nursery decor, there's probably... Uh, pictures of Noah and the ark in them. I mean, there's a boat. Kids love boats, right? 
There's animals. Kids, kids love animals. There's a rainbow at the end. Where can you go wrong? Well, there's this also this idea that God instructs uh, this thing that happens where everyone except the one family gets wiped out. All of creation, all of humanity, like that. This is the story that we're telling to kids. Um, there's also like these logistical and, and scientific uh, things that come up that, that don't really necessarily make sense either. Like, if there was a worldwide flood, why doesn't it appear anywhere in the geological record? Why can't we find that there was a worldwide flood? This was a big boat. The dimensions are actually given in, in, the, in the story. Really, we got two of every kind of animal on that boat, though? And if this was only a couple hundred years after creation, where are the dinosaurs, man? And then we hear also that when he starts the project, Noah's 600 years old. Does that make sense? Those are, those are important details. Those are details that you might have questions about. I would love to talk to you about some of those details if you want to break down some of those, those questions. I would love to have that conversation. But for our purposes today and throughout this series, those are details that are going to get in the way of the experience and our answering of those two questions. Why on earth does this story continue to be handed down and told even to our youngest kids? And what does it have to say about God, ourselves, and the world? And when it comes to that, I think there are two, two answers that at least I would give. One is that this story says something unique about how God actually is that is in contrast to how we might have been taught about God. And then secondly, um, it provides us with tangible symbols that remind us of that important thing about God. So first, uh, how, how it contrasts with, with pictures of God. So there's this ancient story. Tell me if this sounds familiar. There's this ancient story of this righteous man uh, who is informed that there's going to be a defined flood that wipes out all of creation. He's instructed to build a boat and to bring every seed of every type of, of living thing onto that boat so that it can survive the flood. The flood fills up the whole earth. Only the things that are on that boat survive. Once the floodwaters start to recede, uh, he sends out birds to go uh, see if the water's completely gone. Once the water's completely gone, he leaves the boat, goes out, builds an altar, makes a sacrifice, and the, the smell of the sacrifice can be smelled all the way up in heaven. What is the name of this man? Gilgamesh. Did you say Gilgamesh? Grant knows Gilgamesh. Okay, we got two Gilgameshes. So the, this story is called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it was actually written about 2,000 years before the story of Noah. So flood stories in the ancient world, particularly in this part of the ancient world known as Mesopotamia, literally that means between two rivers, flood stories were not unique. Uh, it's kind of like a flood story coming from Fargo. There's still floods that happen every year in Fargo? Every year in Fargo. There were floods that happened all the time in Mesopotamia, this land between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And every time people ask questions about why did this happen? God must have been behind this somehow. How can we explain this? And so these stories got passed down over thousands of years. So the idea of a flood story trying to to provide a divine explanation for this event wasn't that unique. But what is unique is how the story ends. 
usually uh, how these stories would end was that humanity survived, the gods were pretty mad about that because they tried to wipe them out in the first place. Um, but what happens in this story is what? Humanity survives, and then there's a rainbow. The rainbow's key. Rainbow brings me to point number two, which is about tangible symbols that point us to something else that is important. So a rainbow. We know from science a rainbow isn't a thing that God just paints across the sky, right? We know from science it's about light reflecti- uh, refracting and reflecting and shining through droplets of water. Thousands of years ago, people didn't have this science. They didn't understand how rainbows uh, came to be. They wouldn't have cared when it came to this story. The point was not how. The point was what it represented. You see, when the rainbow gets put in this story, after, after the flood happens, after uh, what's left of humanity and, and all the animals walk off, uh, walk off the ark, a rainbow gets put down as a symbol that you know all those other flood stories about the angry gods? You've been told that God was angry, that God wanted you dead? That's not how this story ends. That's not who this God is. This is not what this God represents. And as a tangible sign to you, every time you see a rainbow, what you should envision is a warrior God putting down their bow. God is not a God of war against humanity. God loves you and God cares for you. And every time you see a rainbow, no matter how it comes about, refraction and reflection of light through water droplets, we want you to remember that God loves you and God is for you. So why on earth are these sto- why on earth has this story been passed down for thousands of years? Why is it one that we continue to tell to our kids? Because we still live in a pretty messed up world with all sorts of floodwaters that are rising up around us. All sorts of destruction and distraction, things that we could easily say, God's against us. This story is a constant reminder that that's not the case. That every time we see a rainbow, we are reminded that God is in fact for us. You may have been told something else. Earlier in the story, you may have been told something else. God was out for humanity, but that is not the case any longer. That is not the case with this God. And every single time you see that tangible thing, it's a reminder of it. I'm as pessimistic as they come, folks. I'm a professional ruiner of things. I'm a killjoy. I don't get pleasure out of it. I just sometimes do it. We, we could dig into all of this problematic stuff about this story, but really what we need right now is we need to be people who point people to hope that God is good and God is for us. And so any opportunity that we have, that any time we can point to a tangible symbol and say, that represents that God, if it's a rainbow in the sky or a rainbow on a flag, it's an opportunity to point to something important about God, ourselves, and the world. That's why we hand down the story. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus' earliest followers were faced with this question of how do we help people understand the, the bigness of what Jesus is all about? 
they were convinced that it wasn't just about, well, he's going to set us free when we die and we're going to get to go to heaven someday. It had like real tangible implications for the here and now as well. How can we help people to understand that? What are some symbols that we can adopt that point to that? One of them was a cross. A cross was a, an object that was very familiar in the Roman world that meant death. And yet they adopted it. They took it on like, like a rainbow and said, this points to something different. This points to life and freedom and God's love for us. But then Jesus also did this as well. In the last moments that he had with his closest followers, he gathered for an important meal with them. It was the Last Supper, the moment we're going to celebrate that together. Um, you might know it as uh, the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist. Jesus gathered with his closest followers and he took these everyday elements that they would have been familiar with and said, here's now what I want you to think of when, uh, when you take these things. 2,000 years later, we sometimes have gotten distracted by the details. How on earth is this possible? How on earth is Jesus' body in this bread? How on earth is Jesus' blood in this wine? Is it bread or is it a wafer? Uh, is it, is it uh, wine or is it grape juice? We can get caught up in the details, but what it does is it just distracts us from the experience of the God who is for us and loves us and invites us along with them. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward and participate in that uh, retelling of that experience with us. Um, because these are COVID times, yes! Because these remain COVID times, uh, and because we're outside, it makes it easier. We have these single servings. Um, we'll invite you to come forward, say a quick blessing over you. You can take these back to your seats, remove the top layer. There's a wafer in there. Uh, and then remove the bottom layer, and there is grape juice in there. The wafer is gluten-free, so if you're gluten-free, you are welcome to participate. Uh, the, the grape juice is grape juice, not wine, so if you are in recovery, you are welcome to participate. This meal represents God's love and embrace of all of us, and so everyone is invited forward. Um, if you're distracted by the details, if you don't have it all figured out, you're invited forward. If you're a little child, you are invited forward. You have no idea what you think or where you're at. You are invited forward because the best way to experience the grace and love of God is simply to experience it.